0: Welcome to On Documentary, presented by KIOS at the Movies. I'm your host, Joshua Labure, and today we're talking about the 1979 documentary, The Wobblies. What's
1: your name? Sam Scarlett. What's your religion? The IWW. That ain't no religion. The only one I got. Are you a citizen? No, I'm an industrial worker of the world. man could not be denied membership for any reason, as long as he was an actual wage worker, race, creed, color, uh, any, for any reason, uh, sex, whatever. Industrial workers of the world work, good wages, and respect. That's what they wanted for the workers to be people, not nobody. In the grain fields, we harvested every major grain that grew in North America. Wheat, oats, barley, rye. The heat was 110 to 112 to 114 degrees temperature out in the sun. And you could look across the plains and see a freight train from miles away.
0: The Wobblies were a group of workers who were fighting for dignity and work against the new industrial society and capitalist tendencies to treating workers like machines. They were seeking to build one big union for all workers regardless of race, gender, class, or skill. The organization, which was founded in 1905, was called the IWW, or the International Workers of the World. The documentary that shares the IWW members' nickname, The Wobblies, came out in 1979 at the New York Film Festival and was made by Stuart Byrd and Deborah Schaefer, who IndieWire quotes as saying, When we started production on the Wobblies in 1977, our goal was to rescue and record an almost completely neglected chapter of American history as told by its elderly survivors. They go on to say we never imagined then that the themes of labor exploitation, anti-immigration legislation, and racial and gender discrimination would resonate as strongly as today. I think that sentiment is apt. Throughout the film, I couldn't get the image of healthcare, service, and hospitality workers out of my head, especially in the last couple years. It also feels more relevant than ever as workers are making history and winning unions at places like Starbucks and Amazon. Places that employ more and more people as skilled labor jobs are automated and moved overseas. This rising movement fits right into the ethos of IWW. The film features rare archival footage, a wide array of beautiful union songs from the era, and on-camera interviews from the rank-and-file members who were there. The restoration looks and sounds beautiful, and this is a film that I hope a new generation of workers will see and be inspired by. Today on On Documentary, I discuss the Wobblies with a panel of incredible folks here at Film Streams in Omaha,
2: Nebraska. I'll let them introduce themselves here.
3: Hi, everyone. This is Billy So I'm the Community Programming Manager at FilmStreams.
4: And I am Patrick. I'm the Director of Marketing for FilmStreams. And I am Brett. I host a series of podcasts that are interested in left-wing history and philosophy.
0: So, today I kind of want to start off with, Brett, can you give us a little bit of a history uh, of your understanding of the Wobblies and IWW? Like a brief history, just to kind of introduce people
4: for who maybe aren't familiar sure yeah um, i think it's important to contextualize them in their time so this is in the early 19 teens leading up to the uh, initiation of world war one and then well into uh, the 20s so you know this is a period of time right before uh, you know the great depression right before world war ii it's in the midst of world war one at least part of it the story starts a little bit before that but this is a time in american history much like our own um, that is mired in extreme uh, wealth inequality. This is the era of the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, and this is a time when a lot of European immigrants and black laborers were you know, really exploited uh, to the max in a highly unequal economy. And so the IWW was one of many sort of labor formations that arose, but it separated itself from other labor formations by being one more radical and being opened to non-white, non-male participants and being open to unskilled labor in particular. So it really set IWW apart from other uh, labor formations in the United States, and it was a crucial part of labor history.
0: So one of the main reasons why we're talking about this film is that there is going to be a May Day screening at film streams. And you know, I'm just curious. How did this film screening come about to Bilgesu?
3: So it was a distributor that approached us with this new restoration that is coming out nationwide, and they're organizing May Day screenings all over the U.S. Actually, and you know, my director, you know, sent me the film saying, "Are you interested in this?" I'm like, "Yeah, this is actually like a really important piece of like history that is kind of like usually not known a lot." Even in like a lot of like left um, uh, factions, and um, I really like the way that the documentary like approached this history, which is not like a top-down kind of like academic like uh, piece of like history telling, but something that really like focuses on people who. C- were part of the movement who, are, who were at the time of the documentary in their 80s, sometimes in their 90s, telling their story with their own words and kind of like showing the spirit of like the rebellion that came to basically put its mark on the on the time. So I wanted to do something for May Day because I think it's a really beautiful day to celebrate the labor of us all. And I couldn't find uh, a better like alternative to this.
0: Yeah, and it does seem like there is not a lot of... Uh you know in other countries May Day is a huge holiday and in the united states it's not so much because they turned it into labor day and moved it to kind of separate it from the workers history in a lot of ways so i appreciate that it does seem like there's more awareness happening now um but with that let's uh, get into the film itself was this everybody's first time seeing this or have you seen this before
3: first time first
0: time new experience So, Patrick, what were your initial thoughts of the film?
2: Yeah, I think, well, knowing a little bit of the impact of it, um, I was really responding in a way that was like, wow, the fact that this film kind of shaped this form of documentary filmmaking was really impressive throughout. I mean, I guess people say that Ken Burns was really influenced by this film in the way that it is very much about firsthand people. The, 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 the words of eyewitnesses, and the way that it's a collage of archival materials over those accounts, and even down to like sort of pan and scan, and uh, and I think we can get way into this. I think we all have something to say about this, but also the use of music. Uh, I think coming from that standpoint as well while I was watching it, I was extremely uh, impressed overall.
0: Actually, Bilgesi, you mentioned before that, that um, the Ken Burns connection, um or as far as like creating this type of documentary can you speak to that a little bit more
3: yeah so it it was really just like revolutionary in terms of like the form of documentary filmmaking because you know, we are so accustomed to, like, see now these, like, archival images, like, populate the screen when it's a documentary. But we have to, like, remember, first of all, that how hard it is to find the archival documentation to make this documentary. Like, uh, the interviews that I was, like, reading with the filmmakers was really highlighting, first of all, like, the inaccessibility of these, like, archival materials. And when they were accessible or when they seemed accessible, they were actually destroyed and no one even made a note saying that this, this, this like, film canister is actually, like, in the garbage has been in the garbage for 30 years so like what they did like really like seeking out the people that's that's new because before that it was a little bit more like a top-down approach to like telling how it is from like a more I don't want to say academic necessarily but from a more kind of like know-it-all like the subject that knows it kind of like point of view and here we are seeing the coming together of like first hand accounts as well as like archival data as well as like you know an emotional arc into the documentary right we're not only seeing these like different episodes of like you know like strikes and like organizing but we're actually like following some kind of like story arc if you could say that tells us the beginning of the IWW and the unfortunate kind of like decline which also we can like talk about as a the consequence of like these like raids and the imprisonment of like it's like significant like leaders
2: yeah i thought it was especially like extremely effective to use cuz at this point most of the eyewitnesses most of the people interviewed for the documentary are in their 80s so it was extremely humanizing to be able to like really identify with these elderly folks and just sort of like cuz a lot of the content of the film is about how they were radicals about how people were afraid of them and to I don't know, that seems like something we hear about now, but then sixty years on, these same people as sort of you get to see them from a different perspective. Um, I thought it was smart
4: yeah it was it was incredibly interesting to see, you know to to be kind of crude about it, like older white American people who in today's day and age, you just saw those people the way they were dressed and talking on the street, you would kind of assume they're on the the far right and then just very radical left wing anti-capitalist, pro-worker sentiment coming out, of, coming out of their mouths. And even like the, the little old lady who had a, you know, uh, striking, went to jail. And then she, one of the cops that, that arrested her asked her how oh, yeah. she, she said, you know, I don't, I don't date cops and had this, like, really adorable smile. So. Legend material. <laughs> so so. I, really, I really enjoyed that sort of, um, you know, asymmetry between what one might expect living in the current political era and the actual realities of their lived experience.
0: You know, growing up in Texas, as I did, you know, you kind of have a certain view of like what an American person was or a Southerner or a a worker, you know, and especially in like professions like a lumberjack or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really interesting to see, you know, that kind of history. And then you also see, like Patrick kind of mentioned, there's a lot of. We see the repression happening. We see a lot of propaganda against IWW throughout the film, which was really interesting to see. Um, one that really stuck out to me was, like, there was this specific uh, cartoon Uh, about a rat that comes out. (laughs) That comes out like, yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I think that really they started making that connection between the Russian revolution and then, uh, and what was already happening in the worker movement and they made it the same thing. And not only that, but you really see the beginnings of, uh, you know, McCarthyism and what ended up being like the Cold War and stuff like that. Um, and I know this is something you talk a lot about on, on Rev Left, so... I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this.
4: Yeah, well, one thing that jumps to mind is how much this history has been sort of eradicated from popular knowledge. And part of that, a large part of that has to do with what came after, which was, as you said, McCarthyism, the Red Scare, then after World War II, you had the Cold War. And and then, you know, you had even beyond that, the Reagan Revolution in the 80s. And so there was really no time in American history from that point forward, where being, you know, militantly pro-worker was largely accepted or even talked about or, or taught to people so you know i think a lot of americans have a huge you know hole in their you know understanding of american history where labor history fits in and it's been eradicated through those processes of reaction to it
3: and there's another connection there which is like you know when the first world war is starting afl makes a basically like concession with with the government saying there won't be a strike during the war but iww holds on to its, like, radical approach of, like, no, the, the the real war is between the classes here. Therefore, we are not going to, like, stop our activities because of this. And therefore, they are branded as, like, anti-US, um, you know, traitors, even, which is another, like, reason, or one other way in which they were basically, like, seen as, like, the evil and kind of, like, associated with, like, Soviet Russia.
4: And just the, the long-lasting history of, like, general russophobia and hatred of the russians in american history throughout you know right wrong or indifferent it's just this long strain in american politics and when you can tie a domestic you know pro worker movement to a foreign scary enemy so so successfully you can really you know do damage to that movement and they did that and, and what you really see and in, in throughout that documentary and even into today's world is how big corporate power the state military and police as well as the mainstream corporate media sort of um, unconsciously or not you know form a buttress and a a bulwark against radicalism of any sort and specifically against radical workers movements uh, of the time and even today we still see um, the media and big corporate power and the state often coming together to squash left wing, particularly uh, liberation movements, Black Lives Matter, pro worker movements, or whatever it may be, especially if those movements refuse to fit nicely into polite PC political activity and actually want to get a little bit more direct in their action.
0: Yeah, I think there's a quote that really stands out to me that relates to this. It was from Jay Gould, and um, he was like a really rich person at the time. And he said, I can hire one half of the working class to kill the other half. Mm-hmm.
4: So you see the, the, the systematic dehumanization of these workers. They were not seen as humans. They were machines at best, pawns for the you know, exploitation and accumulation of huge amounts of capital. And yeah, they were literally treated worse a lot of times than our pets are, than farm animals. And so what did they do? They had the dignity to unify and fight back. And that should be something that anybody in America, right, left, or center as long as you're not super, super rich, should find some, should be able to find some pride in. Like that's in a part of American history that Americans should be proud of, but we just don't know about it. And even into
2: like small examples, like saying that IWW stood for I Want Whiskey, which is like barely <laughs> coded, you know, it's just like astounding to see, you know, it's a through line that I stuff is still going on.
0: You're holding down to Hallelujah.
3: But they were proud to be bums. Yes, <laughs> that, and that's that's like that's one of the things that was kind of like significant in terms of like how you know trade unions were differentiating themselves from this like rebel, unruly, basically like kind of like working class because they were saying, okay, these people they just want like anarchy, mm-hmm. which is not bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like. <laughs> We talk about respectability politics. It didn't have that kind of like concept back in the day, but that's that's what it was. Because if you're like a migratory worker, you work when there is work and when there is no harvest to make, you have to like live on your own means. You have to hop on trains to go from one place to another place because you don't have money. You have to live with others in the forest. Like You have to, like, survive, basically. But, you know, the designation of, like, IWW basically as a group of bums, as a group of, like, you know, like, unruly people who just want to, like, destroy and, like, distribute chaos. It's very propagandic.
4: Or are working for our enemies in Germany or Russia. Yeah, Yeah.
3: exactly.
2: But that was refreshing. Like, again, these older folks talking are, they're three-dimensional people who are also, like, they could defy stereotypes, but they could also embrace parts of themselves that are not as acceptable or friendly. Again, like the respectability politics of it, they're not afraid to acknowledge those parts of themselves that are a little rough around the edges, which is refreshing.
4: Absolutely. And you had to be rough around the edges to to put up with what they put up with. The onslaught of violence from, you know, dogs working for the boss or the militia or the police like these are fist fights these are people being brutalized these are people being killed and you you know at some point you have to fight back and, and another thing that made it really radical and even made the more mainstream unions turn away as i kind of alluded to earlier is the, the prominence and the acceptance of black people, of women, and mm-hmm. of unskilled labor. And some of the biggest figures in the IWW um, were like Mother Jones, right? Who we still hear about today. There's there's you know publications in her namesake. She was a radical, you know, feminist and pro worker. Uh, sort of activist and Ben Fletcher Uh, we've done episodes on Rev Left Radio about Ben Fletcher and his life you know a black wobbly and just the 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 race line when it came to unionism at that time you know black people specifically and women were not allowed in these mainstream unions and the IWW saying you're all welcome and we're all comrades here that not only pissed off the government not only pissed off the bosses but you know made angry the more mainstream unions you know
0: I think one of my favorite parts is one of the women in the film and she said that oh you get y'all are just putting the women mm-hmm. up front to like i forgot why why she said you know but she was like no it's that we were you know allowed to be in the front so we went up front <laughs> yeah we
3: weren't we weren't kept in the back Exa- so yeah, we went to the that's front that's what she said
0: we weren't kept in the back so we went up front <laughs> that was one of my that's favorite parts Rebel It was so Walker. good
1: the rebel girl to the working class she's a precious pearl she brings courage pride and joy to the fighting rebel boy we've had girls before but we need some more And the industrial workers of the world for it's great to fight for freedom with a red.
4: Sure, uh, yeah, I just want to touch on, on the, the anarchism a little bit, because, you know, there's two different conceptions of this term, and there were not all anarchists. The IWW had socialist, communist, anarchist, progressives, you know, left-wing, but not any one sect. But, you know, the the, the image used against them uh, to denigrate them was the, the classic image of the foreign anarchist bomb thrower, right? A guy, like, with a twirly mustache and a black coat with a bomb in his hand. But really what they meant by anarchism was something like anarcho-syndicalism, mm-hmm. which is that... The workers should democratically own and operate the businesses that they toil under, that they should have a say in how their workday is. They should collectively and freely associate to be able to determine what to do with the profits their labor creates. And that is a radical idea, to be sure, but it's not synonymous with bomb-throwing and violence and anarchy in the colloquial sense. It's about, you know, radical democracy, and that's probably the best term for it. The extension of real democracy into the workplace and the economy itself which America has never, has never allowed.
0: Yeah. And I think the loss of that history is detrimental and it has been detrimental to, um, you know, younger working folks. And especially as we are entering this era of radical inequality again, mm-hmm. um, it looks different, but it's the same. <laughs> uh, cause now, you know, maybe the lower classes have more stuff, but that's cause they're, you know, packed with more debt. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've had more access to debt while wages have been stagnant since the seventies. We, you know, could talk about that all day, but you know, talking about this time. Now this film is coming out and uh, it's playing here at film streams on the first. And we're also entering this era where there's historic wins with, um, you know, Amazon, you know, finally an Amazon factory getting unionized multiple Starbucks. Now I remember watching a documentary about Starbucks workers and back in like 2006, mm. you know, from a Brave New Films or whatever. And ever since then, being aware that Starbucks is labeled one of the best places to have a service job because it is accepting of, you know, people of color and queer people in, in, in having jobs there. But with that, they've always been you work just enough hours, but you're not full time, you know, like we're not going to give you benefits, but.
3: (laughs) I don't know if you have like seen the leaked videos by the CEO, which basically Mm -hmm. like says managers, like you have the job to like union bust. (laughs) Yeah. So. Mm -hmm.
0: And I worked at Whole Foods, you know, and it was a similar experience at Whole Foods where I worked there for five years. I was made to go to benefits training classes, which was literally, look at all these benefits we give you. You don't need a union. Unions are bad. And this is why unions are bad. And we were made to go to those. Um, But at the same time, they were being branded by like magazines as being like one of the best places to work for. While if you looked at hard numbers, Whole Foods on average hourly workers made less money than every grocery chain in the U S especially if they were unionized, if it was unionized Safeway or a Kroger, they made way more money, on average, than the Whole Foods worker did. Our turnover rate was incredibly high. Mm. With all of that in mind, was, were these things you were thinking about when you decided to uh, bring the film in?
3: No, absolutely, because like I think we are seeing like really like eerie uh, similarities between like now and then, and also because like labor history, unless like you go into like academia to like study it, is non-existent in public discourse. So I think it's actually like really important for like younger audiences to see a documentary like this because you know the fight hasn't started yesterday. I I'm, I'm not saying people don't know that, but me, people do tend to forget that because we tend to like, you know, fall into the um illusion of the present that what we're doing now is like novel, that it has never been done before. But this is literally what IWW was doing, bringing in like unskilled labor and saying, no, we don't need like external structures to like tell us how to like organize. We can do it ourselves. So I think it's like really important to kind of like seep these ideas back into public consciousness and to like think about like what we can learn from the past and like bring into the present.
0: I think that's really an important thing, too, that we always think it's novel. I can't help but ever think about Uber. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, all Uber is doing is exactly what the taxi companies did when they first started. Mm -hmm. And it took workers fighting for their rights to be able to have healthcare and safe working conditions and to not be responsible for their car, you know, like paying for their car and their gas and all that stuff, you know. Like, that all took work. And then a company like Uber comes in and it has the veil of being new, but it's the same thing. Yeah. It's a taxi company that's doing exactly what taxi companies did at the beginning of taxi companies. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, so I, I wanted to touch on that really quickly, and and I think one of the things that IWW can can be relevant for us today is that you know there was this dichotomy as we've talked about between skilled and unskilled labor, and they're like willing to to um, organize the unskilled across industry, which is much more difficult than organizing workers in one single factory or in one single industry, um, especially you know if it's skilled versus unskilled. But that kind of reflects today because with the gig economy and with more uh, precarious work, with multiple jobs, which is the norm now for a lot of working Americans. It's a lot different than when you go to the factory floor, or even with like Amazon and Starbucks, still requires workers to show up in a, in a confined space every day for a certain period of time, and that allows organization to take place much more efficaciously. Uh, the gig economy is much tougher, but the IWW figured out in their own version of the gig economy, which is like this nomadic laborer that, you know, goes across the country searching for jobs, that, that, that's not in a factory every day necessarily. They still figured out how to organize them, and that's the task, I think, and part of the labor movement uh, today. And then the other thing I just wanted to to mention um, about working people today having more creature comforts, having more commodities, more access to, like, we have iPhones and TVs, and even if you only make 20k a year, you probably have a TV and and a smartphone. And, you know, a lot of, like, reactionaries or people on the right or defenders of the status quo will point to that and say, please shut up. You know, your life is getting better, so it doesn't matter if we have a lot more than you. Your life is still getting better, but what working people want is not new flashy gadgets every year. What we want is dignity over our own lives, control over our own lives, and access to the necessities of life, like education, housing, and healthcare, which we are systematically being shut out from, So certain people can make a lot more money than if that was offered to people as a human right. So, again, we should reject this idea that all we want is new gadgets and flashy things. No, we don't want more commodities. We want dignity, control over our own lives, and democratic access to the basic necessities of a good life. And in the richest country that's ever existed in human history, working class people should at least have that.
3: And maybe what we have worse is that the individualistic ethos is like way more entrenched in everyone's consciousness than how it was back then. Because like this feeling of solidarity, it's not just a catch word that they use, that people actually like find themselves in the union and saying, you're my brother, you're my sister, you're my fellow worker. Mm. Like that's that's really strong like yeah. that's that's like a quality of life thing feeling that kind of like bond with your fellow human beings
4: And that and that right there, that solidarity that real solidarity is what bridges the gap between different individuals, different identities. Yes, you may be you know a black trans woman you may be a white guy from rural Iowa you may be this or that, but we can all unite around our shared need to support our families and support ourselves with dignity and that can get that can get past a lot of the, petty individualistic divisiveness that plays no role in bringing people together but just separates, separates, separates. I acknowledge that your lived experience is different than mine, you face different oppression based on your identity than I do as a straight white guy, and I am there for that, I will fight next to you, but when push comes to shove on the picket line, we're all fighting for each other's families, and that really brings people across life experiences and across identities together to fight for something in common, and that's the beauty of solidarity. I agree <laughs> I think we need the tunes That's what we're lacking <laughs> Yeah,
0: I mean, I think that there is just such a beautiful tradition of American folk music And and labor music I mean, I think about Joe Hill You know, you think about the most popular one was Woody Guthrie And this film is like wall-to-wall Just these beautiful renditions of these labor songs
2: it's like is there i'm sure there is i could i could look for this but is there like a like a smithsonian folkways collection of these songs there has to be there has probably like eight volumes but like it was the exp- that was another experience of watching the film was just sort of enjoying it for the music
3: i mean there's a lot of like songwriters that are known from that tradition but there's a lot that kind of like got like Disappeared. They became anonymous, like labor songs. Basically, Um, there's a beauty to that. There's like a sadness to that too. But yeah, whenever something happened, they someone over there was able to make a song about it. So that's kind of like greatest, like one of the scenes in the movie when they ban like IWW leaders to like speak in public, basically, but let the Salvation Army like do their own kind of like you know call-ins they wrote this song about the Starvation Army and how we can all have pie in, you know, in the land above the clubs. <laughs> so, yeah, there there is a revolutionary, I guess, um, aesthetic here, which we also, like, So with, like, Tom Morello's, like, um, uh, Sport of the Strike at Kellogg's, like...
4: Yeah, the music and culture and art always come hand in hand with any you know, radical liberation movement, whatever it may be. Um, That was true for, you know, slaves in America, that was true for immigrants, and that was true for for low-wage workers like this, and the, the legacy of that music then bleeds into the next several decades and goes on to inform many genres that we enjoy today that, you know, we don't know can be traced back, at least to some extent, to these earlier, very folksy, very down-to-earth music that was part and parcel with the labor struggle. It's really cool.
3: Yeah, punk of the day yeah, was exactly right. songs, basically.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think of, you know, like what those things, those people inspired, you know, obviously there was like the Pete tiers and stuff that came later and then later was like billy Bragg, and then you know then there was like the punk rock like the clash and uh and later stuff like propaganda and and then hip-hop like the coup and there's just so much there it's just this history of like beautiful protest music um folk punk is a genre now that can <laughs> be traced punk, directly
4: yeah. back to that music
0: i remember during the 2008 convention uh somebody got their bike uh um confiscated by the cops because it had a this bike is a pipe bomb sticker which is a folk (laughs) punk band that's hilarious
2: (laughs) Uh, it's from Hot Topic I swear Right, (laughs) it's just a sticker
0: I'll say yeah I lived in Denver during the Democratic Convention it did feel like a dystopian society yeah
3: Speaking of music, I am trying to, like, put together a small playlist of, like, worker songs to be played in our lobby and in-house before the screening. So if you come a little bit early, you can also enjoy that and take a look at Mayday posters coming internationally from all decades.
0: I also did, uh, after Patrick mentioned it, I did find there is a Smithsonian (laughs) (laughs) Folkways Classic labor songs right here on the Smithsonian. So I never have
2: an original idea. There's nothing. That's
0: not not surprising.
2: (laughs) I never even heard
0: of Smithsonian folkways. So I'm very excited. I see there's a lead belly one over here. Woo. That's good stuff. It's good stuff.
4: Yeah, just um, for people interested in, in learning more about that sort of history, there's this, uh, this book called The Folk Singers and the Bureau, The FBI, The Folk Artist, and the Suppression of the Communist Party USA. It, it focuses on the 30s, 40s, and 50s, but that comes directly out of this earlier stuff, and it talks about all of the, this sort of genre of music and the rebels and how the state would crack down on artists for perpetuating some radical ideas in their music. Um, so that was all part of the Red Scare and McCarthyism as well.
0: I did want to mention, too, because we were talking about how um, they really started going after the IWW when the war was happening, um, World War I, um, and, of course, Eugene V. Debs was one of the founders mm-hmm. of IWW, and, you know, he went to prison for protesting the war and ran for president from prison for the Socialist Party of the United mm-hmm. States. Like uh, got a lot of votes. Yeah, he got <laughs> a lot of votes, like uh, over a million. I know that. yeah mm-hmm. um, Yeah, uh, uh, it's just really interesting to see because I've heard these stories from their perspective, though. I've heard the Emma Goldman story. I've heard the Eugene V. Debs story over and over again. But hearing it from the rank and file, again, going back to just this film and their approach to this story was just such a beautiful thing.
4: Yeah, and and mentioning Eugene Debs, another huge figure in the IWW was Big Bill Haywood mentioned a lot in this documentary. And one of the things that was so great about him was that he, he made these really like quotable, you know, little pithy remarks that like condensed pretty complex theory and just made it like common sense for working people. So a couple of his quotes is like, you know, if one man has a dollar he didn't work for, then another man worked for a dollar he didn't get. That's very easy to understand, you know? The other one was, I've never read Marx's Capital, but I have the marks of capital all over my body. Like, ooh, <laughs> brilliant, poetic, right to the point, and that made him, uh, among other traits, you know, one of the top leaders of the IWW.
3: No, I was, I was just like thinking of like two things actually, uh, with regards to like these like testimonies. So on the one hand, like they talk very freely about like their, and it's kind of like amazing that like how clear their memory of these like days are, but there seems to be like two things where. There are like internal discrepancies between different um, different people. One of them is like regarding the place of sabotage when it comes to strikes, and the other one is about like so what really happened when things started like going bad. And it, it seemed like there was some kind of like unease with regards to like talking about that decline because there was it seemed like there was a huge disappointment for everyone when they were seeing these people like being jailed like for ten years in prison and like ten thousand like dollars for like bail and even though everyone was like committed to the movement it was a huge blow and it seemed like at least if I'm reading their reactions, right, it was kind of like a touchy subject that they weren't really, like, comfortable talking about.
4: And and that's a tactic that the state uses and still does and used up through the 60s and 70s with COINTELPRO and the black liberation movements was, you know, if you just come down with extreme force on an organization, you start killing people or locking people up or beating people with the full force of the state behind you, they have no way to really match that power, and you could then force those fissures and contradictions that might exist within a movement to widen and become more intense under the pressure of state reaction. And so they learned that, I think, by crushing these early labor movements. And uh, they then employed it later uh, against like black liberation movements, uh, specifically in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, today as well with Black Lives Matter, Ferguson, uh, all these things for the last several years over the last decade or so. You know, there's been brutal, brutal, with no accountability, state repression of largely peaceful protests, largely peaceful protesters. And uh, it just it just wreaks havoc on any organization um, because you just cannot stand up to the pure power and will and money of the of the state.
0: Yeah, because they didn't touch a lot on and I think maybe that this just wasn't the film for that. But it didn't touch a lot on, like, uh, you know, the massacres in Colorado or the Haymarket Massacre or the killing of Joe Hill. Like, all of these things were happening where people were dying at the hands of police all over the country that were involved in IWW. And I think that after it seemed to be and I'm curious, like, I don't know the history on this, but it seemed the film kind of suggested that maybe there was some connection to a split between like communists who supported the Bolshevik revolution and like anarchists maybe who didn't.
4: Right. That was yeah, that was definitely something that was one of the one of the splits and the fissures that could be wrinkled over in previous times. But once the Russian Revolution proved you know, we can take these ideas and we can actually go on the offense and we can actually win. Well, then it, then it becomes a question of like, okay, we all have these ideas of like socialism and communism. Here's a real world movement to put it into practice. And half the people are going to say, well, I don't like that. I don't like the idea of that or being structured that way. And somebody else is like, well, it's not ideal, but they're operating under unideal conditions. And so, you know, this, whatever, those arguments then just, create more tensions plus the state pressure yeah those splits are going to intensify and and weaken the movement
0: yeah and i think that we have to you know mention that uh, essentially this was a popular movement and it was a movement that made things like the new deal possible and made things because they were the only reason why franklin roosevelt you know, signed in the new deal was because they were scared of movements like IWW, 100%. like they were scared of socialism. They were scared of communism. They were scared of anarchism. So they found a, uh, a way to placate people and a lot of real world, great things happened because of that, but it fell short of a lot of things, especially when we think about healthcare and totally. jobs guarantees and any kind of ownership over your labor. Um, but there were a lot of wins in that. But this was made possible because of movements like IWW. But essentially, IWW was a failed
4: movement. Yeah. I mean, in the way that the you know Black Liberation Movement and the Black Panther Parties and all these movements throughout history have been acute failures, right? But they go on to inform course, the, yeah. the next movements and, and create a cultural legacy. Like Malcolm X, for example, was assassinated right in, in the prime of his life as he was making this radical intellectual transition towards like a broader humanism and this really interesting intellectual move he was assassinated so you can say Malcolm X lost but one of the things that Malcolm X created in my opinion is the or helped go on to influence the entire genre of hip-hop because one thing Malcolm X always said is like black is beautiful love yourself as a black person don't buy into the white idea that you're somehow lesser than, right? And then what is hip-hop if not this confident, swaggering, you know, pro-black movement that is grassroots and comes out of that culture, comes out of that rebellious you know, um, movement and is informed by Malcolm X. So in, in and that, in that way, these things continue to live on through us and create a legacy that's really beautiful. And part of reclaiming this history is so that we could put these lessons to work in the modern situation that we find ourselves in.
0: Yeah, and I was very excited that this film was being released because of that. Because, I mean, I said it was a failed movement, but I mean it in the sense of how you, you know, said it, that I've been aware of IWW for a very long time, and it's something that a lot of my anarchist friends were a part of when they are running their collectives in Denver, and it, like, inspired me uh, to learn more about it and to learn more about Joe Hill and to hear these labor songs and to understand my place as a worker and Mm. make that connection you know, to uh put context into how our society is structured, especially when we're at work. Um, so in that sense, of course, it'll live on. And that's why I'm so excited about this film being re-released and having this beautiful transfer is because we are in this moment where maybe technically we uh you know, like unionship is down, but it's rising in the largest sector of our economy of workers right now, the largest, you know, working segment right now is service work. And so when people at Starbucks are unionizing, when fast food workers are unionizing, when Amazon is unionizing, that is an opportunity to actually grow and learn about solidarity and learn about our place in, in context.
4: Anybody that's in any union effort this would be a wonderful like movie night, you know, when you and your you, you and your coworkers Afternoon. are organizing. Afternoon. Afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to come see this movie in the context of an organizing effort would be deeply inspirational.
3: I I love that. Thank you for that. <laughs> Afternoon, guys. One p.m. Afternoon. Um, and one thing that I just like wanted to add to like what you were like saying a minute ago is that, yes, it's it's undeniable that left movements have been defeated over and over because, as Brett was saying, what we are against is like militarized force, like literally like unless you are going into that domain we are bound to see like defeats but i think we should be like aware of like this like melancholic attachment of of loss all the time and that's why I, why i think it's important to like contextualize this film and this event as part of a celebration for may day so i that's like that's how I would like to like at least like frame it. And that's how I would like to like invite people to like come over and like really like enjoy this history and like be part of the conversation that's going to happen after the screening.
4: Yeah. Instead of tragic nostalgia, use it for, you know, real inspiration.
0: Yeah. I think just connecting it to what's going on now is like really beautiful because it's such an opportunity right now to like show people like maybe people are unionizing, but maybe they don't even know why, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, that history back out there and like reconnecting with it and recontextualizing it and understanding why even our left wing party in the United States is so hostile towards, you know, more left wing movements, more hostile than they are towards the right wing element, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. it's interesting to know why. And it's because essentially we're trying to like, you know, the, the workers are trying to have some kind of power again.
4: Yeah, and and I would argue, from my personal opinion, both major political parties in the United States are ultimately answerable to capital, and they are run by and dominated by the rich, um, and so they're never going to have interest in radical redistribution of wealth or power. Um, but what they will do is they will pay lip service and and do symbolic gestures, gestures that don't actually transform the material hierarchies of our society, but which lend credence, at least in rhetoric, to a movement. This happens with the workers' movement, also happens with Black Lives Matter, etc. But when it comes time to, you know, maybe shift resources away from from police and towards mental health care. Or when it comes time to actually redistribute some of this stuff, or, or the 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 you know Scranton Joe needs to stand up and, and actually put his full you know bully pulpit weight behind these union struggles, and you don't hear a peep from him. That really says what those parties ultimately serve. And I think any left movement should at least be aware of it. We can disagree on what that means with our approach to the Democratic Party. Um, I'm very skeptical and pessimistic about them being a vehicle through which we can pursue these movements. I see them more as the main challenge, but we should at least keep in mind that these parties are ultimately answerable to capital, and they're never going to be on our side when push really comes to shove.
0: Now, I think I want to like jump into the technical aspects of the film because up until now this film came out in 1979 there's been a dvd release you know it looks you know the version i saw looks fairly rough so i'm very excited to see i saw a clip of the new 4k transfer and it looks gorgeous and i'm very excited to see it on the screen
2: yeah, even if you have seen that DVD version of it, you've never seen it like this. It's, this is a new restoration that was funded by MoMA. Uh, it's being put out by Kino Lorber, which is one of the most respected repertory film distributors in in cinema. Um, also, this is a movie that's on the National Registry of Historic Films. It's very significant. It's well. It's been waiting for this kind of treatment. Uh, so it's, yeah, I think it's coinciding with the cultural moment. But the, uh, yeah, the people who have been taking care of this film have finally gotten the resources to make it look better than it ever has.
3: No, I don't have much to, like, add to that. It's beautiful. Um, And it's not only, like, photographs and, like, you know, like, video captures, but there's also a bunch of, like, drawings that were, like, really interesting to, like, look at coming from, like, workers
4: yeah and the the political cartoons that they wove in and you know that 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 just it's very interesting to see how the political cartoon was one of the <laughs> the mediums through which they attacked this movement of the IWW and and way, the way they drew them and what they used to symbolize them and stuff is very fascinating yeah
0: i, I also i mean it's really interesting to go back to the, um You know, this style of documentary for a while was really easy to parody, you know, because (laughs) of like the ubiquity of like Ken Burns and stuff like that. But I've been finding like a new um, appreciation for those films. I've been revisiting Ken Burns films and I've been revisiting like more historical documentaries like this. So it was really cool to see one with such reverence and uh, and see kind of like where this kind of style You know, the era that it kind of originated from and and also seeing it about a subject matter that's just so close to my heart was just really impactful.
4: And I will say for myself that the movie teared me up multiple times. I mean, if you have a heart like, you know, you feel for these people like the one story about the father who was holding his kid on a porch during a protest and got shot and killed by the police. And he was a father of five. You know, of course, your, your eyes well up with tears and your heart breaks. Uh, for that. These were real people with real lives and, you know, they wanted just basic comforts and dignity for them and their families and to see them brutalized, just trying to fight for that. uh, Yeah, it'll never not be heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, because I think we look back a lot of times with historical films like this and uh, you know, when they're told in the aspect that you were talking about, like from the top down, you know, it's like hard. I mean, it's easy to see it as a mass of people but seeing it like this, you just realize it was a collection of people, they were individuals, but they were, you know, fighting together and they cared for one another.
3: And like it's something that you don't see because it's impossible to see. Is that these were the people that they could find, right? There's like thousands that they wouldn't be able to find because they don't have their like names in any kind of like record, or they're dead, especially like minors because of like the nature of the job. That's why we have the wife of a minor, but not the vi- miner himself. So like we gotta like remember like it's not only like you know not only applaud the documentary makers for like their efforts but also like see yeah a lot of this has been erased because people's lives were like you know just like erased from history because rank and file we're not talking about like uh, these like really influential charismatic leaders which is like great like Haywood obviously we're going to be like moved by his words because he's an orator he's. But it's the people that are like fighting on the street that are like actually on like the picket line and kind of, I guess, just like sending my respects to those people who were not even able to be like, you know, represented in, in a piece of like media like this
4: every movement as you said will will have its leaders that we point to but we should never forget that every successful and every failed movement worth anything at all is underpinned by regular everyday people nameless faceless people we will never know or hear about but who you know in many cases sacrifice their life so that people in the future us might have a better go at it and that's that's beautiful
0: So I haven't done this in a while and I didn't prompt anyone, but does anybody have any like further reading or films or whatever to suggest to people to like dive more into this?
4: Well, I don't want to be shamelessly plugging my own show, but we've, we've done episodes on the IWW, on Ben Fletcher, and on the Folk Singers in the Bureau, that book with the author. So if you're interested in any of those, you can go to Rev Left Radio on any podcast and, and look at hour, two hour long episodes on each of those topics. And it's, yeah, just filling out the picture even more. It's a good show. It is a good job. Thank you. It is good.
0: I, I, one of the first things whenever I was moving to Omaha, one of my friends was like, Brett from Rev Left lives there.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I never even thought about that.
4: So it was super funny. We um, immediately met up and became friends. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> But uh, I'll say for me, I'm going to suggest Harlem County, USA is a huge one. If you haven't seen that documentary, it's a must-watch. Barbara Koppel, just incredible film. Um, Also, there's a great through-line episode about Eugene V. Debs. Their capitalism series has been awful. It's like one of the worst things they've ever made. (laughs) Um, But this episode about Eugene V. Debs is is incredible. Um, And then I'll also say... uh, um, I just watched a film called, uh, Her Socialist Smile about Helen Keller, and it's a challenging film. It's a hard film to watch just as far as like the format. It's very experimental. Um, but it, it took me like three times starting it to finally like sit down and watch the whole thing. And once I like connected with it, I really connected with it. So
3: we're also probably going to be showing, um, Norma Rae later in the year. Yeah, that's a, I just bought that on VHS. I'm very excited. Oh, nice! I just
0: got a VHS copy of that. Ugh. Score. Yeah, it was good.
3: Like Reds is a good movie in general. Like, but these are just like general, not touching really on the IWW. I
0: mean, that's okay. It doesn't have to be about IWW.
3: I mean, Ken Loach movies are always great oh, propaganda yeah. pieces.
0: I Daniel Blake.
3: Daniel Blake. Oh my God, <laughs> that movie. <laughs> I want to show that one. Um, Two Days, Two Days, One Night by the Dardan brothers. Oh, mm. um,
2: Oof, that one's tough.
3: Sorry to Bother You by Sorry to Bother way. You. Yeah,
0: that's so good. <laughs> I'll also say The Young Karl Marx by Raoul Peck. Mm. Good movie.
4: In, in <laughs> Dubious Battle by John Steinbeck from 1936. Mm. Um, it's all about uh, labor organizers of the previous few decades and uh, the the repression they faced, and it's not exactly on the IWW, but very much in that world and of that time, so, and it's a pretty short novel as well. Patrick, you got anything? I think y'all covered it. Nice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Cool, I want to thank all of my guests for joining me today.
3: Thank you.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much. The Wobblies is playing on May Day. That's May 1st at the Ruth Sokolov Theater at 1 p.m. For KIOS, I'm Joshua Labior. For Film Streams, I'm Patrick Kinney.
3: <laughs> is from
0: Film Streams. And Brett from Rev Left. You have been listening to On Documentary, produced by me, Joshua Labior. This show is presented by KIOS at the Movies. For more information, visit KIOS.org. Happy May Day, everyone.
1: Is wiser. The union forever defending our rights. Now, with the black, let the workers unite. With our brothers and our sisters from many far off lands, there is power in us. laws cannot defeat us but who defend the workers who cannot organize the bosses send their lackeys out